We're considering today the final of our trilogy, The Gospel Truth. We've been taking a long, hard look at Jesus and the church that has sprung up in his name. And it is hoped that we've touched upon some questions that you've always had but were afraid to ask. If you're filling out an information form of some kind and it asks you, what is your religion? What do you answer? You may put down Catholic or Protestant or Jew, or you may be more specific. You may say Methodist, Baptist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, even unity. But what does this mean? Can you define your religion? Could you tell the difference between your church and the one across the street? It is doubtful if many persons could, except that perhaps you believe in baptism by dunking and they believe it by sprinkling. For many persons, religion is inherited by family tradition. I was a Methodist born and a Methodist bred. When I die, there'll be a Methodist dead. <laughs> Quite often we hear the expression, I've gotten religion. What is meant by that? Does it mean that the person has developed a new feeling toward life? Or as is more likely, that he's subscribed to a particular collection of church dogma? In my college days, I was doing some work in a college that had a seminary for a Protestant denomination. We had a chapel service here every morning, and all students were required to attend. I heard some wild sermons, I can tell you. The seminary students did the preaching. They seemed to vie with one another in giving the most dogmatic of sermons. They sounded for all the world as if they were in full debate with seminarians from another seminary of a different denomination. And they made it very clear that the only way to heaven or salvation was by accepting their own brand of what I call custom-made convictions. It was obvious that the dogma of this particular denomination, and I'm sure it's the same with most other denominations, was so clearly defined, so well worked out, there was little left for the congregant but to accept on confession of faith, or what the little boy once called confusion of faith. This reminds me of Emerson's classic thought, a sect or party is an elegant incognito devised to save one from the vexation of thinking. Dogmatism is the teaching of creeds is infallibly true. It sets forth the terms of a past age as the final terms for all ages and all thought. Christian dogmatism has evolved into the religion about Jesus, which is the essential teaching of what I call churchianity. As we pointed out last week, this is a far cry from the religion of Jesus. Jesus clearly placed emphasis on thinking and speaking and doing, not just on professing. He upgraded the Ten Commandments and all the old law by putting it in terms of constructive thought and consciousness. The church that has sprung up in Jesus' name is often too church-centered, too Jesus-centered, Jesus too dogma-centered. But Jesus stressed a spiritual philosophy that is clearly you-centered. You do not accomplish Jesus' ideal by believing many things about him. You must come to believe about yourself what Jesus believed about himself. Church dogma is often too parochial, too narrow, too rigid. It is often divisive and contentious. In competing in the world for souls to save, it is often dog-eat-dog, dog. as we whimsically put it in our title, dogma-eat-dogma. Dogma. 
Someone told me that they saw this catchy phrase on the church bulletin board. Love me, love my dogma. <laughs> I thought that was kind of cute. As we pointed out last week, the religion about Jesus was essentially hammered out in a series of councils instituted by the Roman Church, the church that was established when Emperor Constantine decided to accept Christianity as a political tool, making it the Imperial Church of Rome, making the Emperor the Pope, and establishing the Christians in the pagan temples of Rome. In order to raise Jesus to a lofty plateau where he would unquestioningly be worshipped as a god, it was necessary to establish the divinity of Jesus and the total depravity of man. So the new dogma clearly established Jesus as very God, God who had come down from out there and had put on the clothes of a man to walk among men, yet was in no way human. Many sincere Christians speak proudly of the great historic creeds, the cumulative dogma established in the councils following the annexation of the church by Rome in 324 AD. But it's important to note, emphasize, important to note, that few of these fundamentals can be found in the teachings of Jesus or were held in any way essential to his personal religion. Now, the first great fundamental of Protestantism is the infallibility of the Bible. This dogma was established during the Reformation when Martin Luther broke with the Roman Church over the issue of an infallible pope, which he renounced. But Protestantism soon became just as rigid in the dogma of the infallibility of the Bible. This became a serious block in the quest for truth in Bible study. Now, it's important to know, and startling to some to hear, that a thing is not true because it is in the Bible. It is in the Bible because at some time, by human judgment, it was considered to be supportive of truth. The Bible has been presented as a book about God, written by God himself. Unfortunately, because of its incredibilities and impossibilities, yes, even obscenities, for the spiritually mature person, has been totally irrelevant for life, suitable only to be used in services of worship and on holy days. When we consider it from a metaphysical or personally symbolic perspective, the Bible is undoubtedly the finest mirror of life by which we can get the most revealing insights into ourselves. But there's no mirror effect if we read the Bible as a historically true literal document. Actually, there's little to be gained by reading the Bible as a book. Anyone who's ever set out to read the Bible from cover to cover has eventually given up in despair, total confusion as to its message, bogged down amid the begats and the begets and the these and the thous. <laughs> Bible study has been hampered by the problems of translation. For instance, in John 5.39, in the King James Version, you read, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye have eternal life. That seems clear enough. Eternal life is gained from reading the Scriptures, right? Wrong. Modern translators have realized that this was a gross error. This had an extremely limiting influence on the Christian movement. What happened? A now obscure translator took it upon himself to omit one word. He wasn't being devious. He probably was quite sincere. He just didn't think the word belonged there. That word was ye. Now, in the modern versions of the Bible, this passage reads, Ye search the scriptures, for in them ye think you have eternal life, and these are they which bear witness of me, and ye will not come to me that you may have life. So while before it had been a command to read the Bible, now Jesus is actually criticizing people for too much Bible reading. He's saying you won't find it in the Bible. Truth is within yourself. 
You use it, the Bible, as a supplement to your spiritual quest and metaphysically read between the lines. It can become a mirror to help you understand yourself, lest you release the truth. As that medieval monk, Johann Scheffler says, though Christ a thousand times in Bethlehem be born, if he's not born in thee, thy soul is all forlorn. Another fundamental of the religion about Jesus is the dogma of the virgin birth. Of course, it was necessary to make this claim to prove that Jesus was in no way like one of us. It's a strange legend. There's little to support it in the Gospels. If there had been a miracle, or even anything unusual associated with Jesus' birth, it was one of the most closely guarded secrets of the ages. Because neighbors certainly have a way of getting to know and gossiping about such things. It's clearly recorded that when Jesus returned home to Nazareth, the townspeople seemed singularly unimpressed. In Mark 6, 3, they say, Is not this the carpenter, son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Jude and of Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? In other words, they were saying, What's so special about Jesus? He's just one of the boys who grew up in our town. Incidentally, another question that quite often is asked, did Jesus have brothers and sisters? This clearly says that he had four brothers and at least two sisters. But this paradox, despite the virgin birth tradition, the Gospels clearly outline a genealogy tracing Jesus' ancestry through Joseph. It's not that a virgin birth is impossible, so a long debate about it is irrelevant. It is simply misleading to teach that Jesus started in a way different from you and me, when he claimed no such difference. He was different in his level of consciousness, in his goals, in his commitment, not by the manner of his birth. Then to make the distinction between Jesus and other people unmistakable, the doctrine was formulated of the degradation of man, the original sin by which man would be forever cursed by the stigma of humanity. Elevated to a central position was a statement of Psalm 51, which reads, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. How these words have been labored from Christian pulpits. Shapen in iniquity, and in sin conceived. But you see, this was taken out of the context of the inspirational nature of the Psalms. Without a doubt, some of the Psalms reach high watermarks in man's eternal song of the soul. But a few of the Psalms are songs of pain and despair, such as in the nature of Psalm 51. You see, Nathan the prophet had just reprimanded David for his dastardly act of sending the husband of Bathsheba to his death in battle so he could have her for his own. And David is remorseful. In Psalm 51, he's soliloquizing over his sins. And ask yourself, in your lowest moments, have you ever said, oh, I wish I were dead, I wish I'd never been born? You don't really mean this, but it's a moment of despair. David is imagining that he certainly must have been conceived and born in sin, or else how could he have done such a foul deed? But here's one of the many paradoxes in the theological application of the Bible. We certainly would not hold up David's act of stealing another man's wife as law for all men for all time. Yet we take his emotionally prompted words of remorse and give them a central pace in our theology. It doesn't make sense, but that's exactly what has happened. It makes even less sense when we remember another soliloquy of David's, expressed at a time when he was in a high state of consciousness. This is Psalm 8, one of the beautiful psalms. A complete contradiction of Psalm 51, and a wonderful tribute to the divinity of man. And it reads, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and stars which thou hast ordained, what is man, that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man, that thou visits him? For thou hast made him but little lower than God, 
and crownest him with glory and honor. Thou makest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. It is in this insistence of the, in the divinity of Jesus and the total depravity of man that the Christian church lost its focus. If Jesus entered life perfect, if he was God taking the form of man for a while, and there's little that is pertinent to our unfoldment in his gospel, it becomes a one-way, dead-end street. You simply believe, and that's the end of it. But life is too great in potential to ultimate in a static existence. Life is for living and growing and unfolding. Didn't Jesus say, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them? There's more involved in accepting a creed and confession of faith. There's a life to be lived, an attainable goal to be achieved. Jesus said, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus achieved this perfection, and the key of his teaching, the thrust of his whole message, was that the same achievement must be the object of your life and mine. Be ye perfect. It's the goal. It's the thing toward which we must always work. Then there's the dogma that Jesus, in his death on Calvary, achieved what is called a substitutionary atonement for the sins of mankind. This tradition holds the incredible idea that God sought to save a sinful society, so he sacrificed his only son on the cross to bring redemption to all who accept Jesus as their personal savior. I call this the hideous dogma of the vicarious atonement. It is a gross oversimplification of a great spiritual principle. As you well know, the born-again Christian so often proclaims, I'm saved. He'll say this over and over again. He feels very good about it. Accepting a once-and-for-all achievement. People often ask me, and they probably ask you too, are you saved? I usually say, from what or for what? <laughs> it might be nice if we could get it all done in one act of confessing Christ. But life is a continuous process of growth. I may be saved for today, but what about tomorrow? Spiritual fulfillment is not achieved through an emotional acceptance of Christ. There's an awful lot of growing to be done. The atonement is really an at-one-ment. Jesus so raised his consciousness to complete oneness with God that he became a light, the light which is the root of all being, but he gave expression to it and fulfilled it. It was not a precedent, but it was a revelation of a principle, for he said, let your light shine. Track buffs may recall when Roger Bannister ran the first mile under four minutes, back in 51 or 52, I can't remember which it was, breaking a barrier that had been considered impossible. It had been a psychological barrier, but once a breakthrough had been accomplished, it was soon being surpassed by scores of runners. In the same way, Jesus broke the barrier of human imitation, proving that it could be broken, opening a way through which we can go and grow. It is in this sense that he is the Savior. He proved that it could be done. So in a sense, the pain and the struggle of making the psychological breakthrough is done for us. This is the substitutionary atonement. But the important thing is, we must follow after. We must go and do likewise. And there's a lot of work involved a lot of discipline, a lot of commitment. Now consider, for instance, that most quoted scripture, John 3.16. I refer to this often. And you see it often on television where somebody's standing behind the camera with a sign on that says, John 3.16. It's an important concept to most fundamentalist Christians. It is God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him shall not die, but shall have everlasting life. This is cited as positive proof of the divinity of Jesus and of his special dispensation as the Son of God and of salvation through believing on him as our Savior. But note how this takes on entirely new meaning when we see it through the perception of that medieval priest, Meister Eckert, one of the great mystics of the Middle Ages. He says that God never begot but one Son, but the Eternal is forever begetting the only begotten. God never begot but one Son, but the Eternal is forever begetting the only begotten. So the only begotten is spiritual man, the Christ principle, the principle of the divinity of man, the divine depth of all persons. The only begotten Son is that of you which is begotten only of God. You see, there's that in all of us that is begotten of many sources. One person may be begotten of an alcoholic father, thus may appear to have traits of weakness in his own character. Another may be begotten of ancestors who have a history of certain disease, so he has a sense of inheriting disease from his parents, so he accepts his lot in life in fear. Many of us are subliminally begotten of the exploitation by advertising in the media, so that we develop the motivations that business is cultivating for its own profit. But John 3.16 is saying, God's love is so great, his wisdom so infinite, that he has given unto us that which is pure and perfect, that which is begotten only of him. No matter what a person may experience, he's after all a child of God, a spiritual being. And he always has within him the infinite potential of the Christ. Whoever believes this about himself, really believes that he is the inlet and may become the outlet of all there is in God, will not die, but will have everlasting life. This is not just proof of Jesus' divinity. It is rather a restatement of the divinity of man, which Jesus proved. He discovered that in himself which was begotten only of God. He believed it so completely that even death in the tomb couldn't hold him. One of the emotionally charged themes for preaching is the second coming of the Christ. This dogma grew out of a misunderstanding of the disciples of Jesus because they thought that he was going to be a political ruler of the new world kingdom. So they thought the resurrection and the ascension was a temporary experience, that he would come again bodily to take up the new order. In theology, there's a science called eschatology, a $75 word, eschatology, which is talking about the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. Jesus did say, I must go, that I might come again. But he's referring to the awakening to the Christ indwelling. Jesus uses the I in a different sense. The I am being the potential within him, which is the potential within us. And when he talks about I must go away, he's talking about the I of the human must go away that the Christ may come again, that the divine fulfillment may take place within you. When you get still and stop trying to work it all out through the intellect, the flow of life will come. But it is not a once and for all salvation he's talking about, but the immediacy of the presence, the flow, always available, which knows our need even before we ask. Someone often asks me, perhaps they ask you, do you believe in the second coming of Christ? I do, of course, but not in the way usually supposed. The first coming of the Christ is the generative experience in which you were born, the indwelling Christ, the ever-present principle of perfect life, which is within you as a divine potential at all times. But you grow into physical and mental and then spiritual maturity, and the time comes when you come to know what you truly are. In this moment, you're reborn, awakened to the Christ consciousness. Paul wrote of this, the first man is of the earth, earthy, the second man is of heaven. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, 
We should also bear the image of the heavenly. See, we talk so often about self-image. Your self-image begins to reflect your divine image, the image which is God as he sees you in spiritual consciousness. When this becomes a part of your self-image in human consciousness, then there's a second coming of the Christ. There's a revealing or a new birth within you. One of the fundamental themes of Christian theology has been sin and evil. I recall the time that Calvin Coolidge went to church on Sunday. His wife didn't go. When he returned from church, his wife said, well, did you like church today? He said, yeah. What did the preacher talk about? He talked about sin. What did he say about it? He was again it. There's been a kind of negative hopelessness in the church's attitude toward the person. In a very real sense, we've been taught that we're sinners, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That all we ever have to look forward to is becoming a good sinner. But we're sinners forever. The wilderness experience of Jesus has been represented as Jesus struggling with the devil, a very real creature with horns, red coat, and forked tail. It's the old dualistic universe with God and the forces of evil locked in death combat. A recent pope dedicated an entire cyclical to the subject of the devil, and he said, Satan truly exists as an active force in the world. He's a dark and enemy agent, a terrible, mysterious, and fearsome reality, a live, spiritual, perverted, and perverting being, the hidden enemy who sows errors and misfortune in human history. But this kind of teaching not only lowers God to a second-rate power, but it elevates evil to the level of transcendence. This has spawned all kinds of weird beliefs, such as Satanism and a hodgepodge of Oriental and Western superstitions. There's an interesting insight given in the Aquarian Gospel, which is not actually scripture, but which, which is a very interesting book that came through inspiration to one called Levi. And they said, and they quote, The only devil from which man must be redeemed is the lower self. If man would find his devil, he must look within. When the demon self has been dethroned, the Savior, love, will be exalted to the throne of power. The devil and the burning fires are both the works of man. And none can put the fires out and dissipate the evil one but the man who made them both. People often say, but there's so many sinful people around. Man must be terribly evil. The important thing is not how much evil a person evidences, but how much strength he's capable of. We need to pay attention to the flowering excellence of the few. In the criminal, we do not see a person evidencing evil nature but a person revealing his failure to understand and release his divine nature. Quite often, truth students in Pollyanna style say, there's no evil, there's no evil, all is good. But there's a lot of evil in the world. Let's don't kid ourselves. There are many sinful people involved in injustices and corruption and various other human mistakes. Just read the newspaper to discover how much evil there is. But there's no power of evil. This is the difference. Evil is simply a concealment of the good. And what is called sin is the frustration of potentiality. There's no evil force lying in wait for you, ever. You are a creature of light, in the universe of radiant light. The key is, let your light shine. You may see dark things, if you see in a mirror darkly, but they will always be the shadowy forms of the things that are deviling you in your mind. And the only things that can occupy your mind are what you permit to be there. You are the master, or you should be, and you can be. The dogma concerning heaven as a hereafter, place of the skies, has dominated Christian belief. The word heaven comes from the Greek word uranos, which means expanding. 
There are limitless possibilities within you, but you must reactivate the process of growth. Let the kingdom come, let the will be done in earth as it is in heaven, Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus clearly said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. He is neither here nor there, but the kingdom of God is within you. And again, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom obviously refers to the divine potential within the person, the tremendous potential that is always present, and he is to let it come into human experience. So one of the things that stands out most clearly in a careful study of the Gospels is that few of the essentials of fundamentalist Christianity can be found in the teachings of Jesus or were held in any way essential to his personal religion. As we've pointed out, they were established in church councils during the period of the Romanization of the church, forming what we call the religion about Jesus. But the simple, open-sky, hillside teachings of Jesus form a religion of the Spirit, leading men and women to express and experience their very own potential in their own lives. This is a very important thing to realize. James Rhodes, in a touching poem, O Soul of Mine, says a thing that needs to be said to the seeker of truth in 17 words. Know this, O man, sole root of sin in thee is not to know thine own divinity. We're going to close this trilogy, The Gospel Truth, by quoting from the prologue of my book, Discover the Power Within You. According to an old Hindu legend, there was a time when all men were gods, but they so abused their divinity that Brahma, the chief god, decided to take it away from men and hide it where they would never find it. Where to hide it became the big question. When the lesser gods were called in council to consider this question, they said, we will bury man's divinity deep within him, within the earth. And Brahma said, no, that will not do, for man will dig deep down into the earth and find it. Then they said, well, we will sink his divinity in the deepest ocean. But again, Brahma replied, no, not there. For man will learn to dive into the deepest waters and will search out the ocean bed and will find it. And the lesser god said, we will take it to the top of the highest mountain and there hide it. But again, Brahma replied, no, for man will eventually climb every high mountain on earth. He will be sure someday to find it and take it up again for himself. And the lesser gods gave up and concluded, we do not know where to hide it, for it seems there's no place on earth or in the sea that man will not eventually reach. And Brahma said, Here's what we will do with man's divinity. We will hide it deep down in man himself, for he will never think to look for it there. <laughs> Ever since then, the legend concludes, man has been going up and down the earth, climbing, digging, diving, exploring, searching for something that is already in himself. <laughs> 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus found it and shared its secret. But in the movement that sprang up in his name, the divinity in man has been the best kept secret of the ages. Let's be still on that note. Over the past few weeks, we've been considering this basic concept of the divinity of man the divine level of our experience. Let's just rejoice and give thanks for an awareness that allows us to see through the glass, see the vistas of truth open before us, 
and give thanks for the truth that makes us free. The great key that is found in the teachings of Jesus, not the religion about him, but his religion, his concept, his consciousness, that each one of us contends within himself a level of the divine. In this divinity within us lies the potential for greater health, for greater affluence, for greater creativity, for greater love, for greater experience of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. When we find the influence of this consciousness, when we turn away from emphasis upon dogma and doctrine, it's basically a matter of something that we believe and accept and profess. Turn to what we call first century Christianity, the religion, the consciousness, the concepts of Jesus in a very simple and practical form. And we find in this experience something that promises a greater life for all of us. Jesus called it the life more abundant. And we recognize and admit to ourselves Life is a continuing process of growth. It's never over in one moment of salvation when we accept Christ as our personal Savior. All that is very good and important. But as a constant process, life goes on. Every day we must begin again. And we recognize that the ultimate is be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. We can never sit still. We can never rest on our oars. We never feel that we've fulfilled life by joining a church or accepting a doctrine. With open minds, receptive hearts, we make the commitment to know the truth, to live it, to experience it, to demonstrate its fullness in our lives. How good it is to realize this truth contains the end and all of what life is all about. When we know this, we can return to our church, our religious associations, strengthened, imbued with a new awareness of a new depth in life, a new depth in truth. And we give thanks for the truth, the truth that makes us free. So be it.